Hello, everyone. I'm Alessandra, your Sexual Assault Safe Haven podcast host, and I'm so happy you're here. On this podcast, we'll be talking about recovering from trauma and sexual violence, reporting sexual violence, safe spaces, and more. I want to share some of my personal experiences to inspire you to use your voice and illustrate that you are valid. I also want to create a community where you feel safe, heard, and understood. And if anyone is in need of help right now, the RAIN Sexual Assault and Abuse and Sexual Violence National Hotline is 800-656-4673. So today we will be discussing a little bit about going to court with a sexual violence case, a little bit about gathering evidence and some challenges when going to court, and In the episode, a few common or examples of sexual assault cases will be brought up. So if any of that is triggering to you, please feel free to skip this episode or come back later and listen to it when you are ready. Due to technical difficulties, the interviewer's volume is inconsistent and will not go much higher for the rest of the episode. However, this was still an amazing episode, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to it. I am very excited to be speaking with our guest speaker. Through a few contacts, I was introduced to Juan Tran, who is the supervising attorney in the sexual assault unit in San Jose, California, and is someone I have spoken to before at actually at the beginning of this Girl Scout project to learn more about the process of taking a sexual assault case to court and also just talking about sexual assault in general. So hi, one, and welcome. I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here with us today, and it's really nice to speak with you again. Uh, I was just wondering if you could give a brief introduction of yourself and your job slash role as the supervising attorney in the sexual assault unit. So, yes, I am the supervising deputy DA of the sexual assault unit in Santa Clara County, which includes San Jose, California. We are the largest county in Northern California, so that is a lot of work. Um, Basically, what I do is I do the day-to-day operations and steer the sexual assault unit team. It's comprised of about 14 trial DAs who prosecute cases, take them out to trial, resolve them. I also oversee what we call the 290 deputy DA, who is... um, the people, it's going to be people soon because we're going to get more people that deal with sex offenders who fail to, who fail to register. So I also see the, oversee that as well as the sexually violent predators who are convicted sexual uh, offenders who have been in the state hospital because they meet certain criteria for being, quote, sexually violent. And so myself and another DA, we review all of the cases that come in in Santa Clara County for review for sexual assault charges, um, as well as revenge porn and privacy of crimes that are related to sex, but not sexual assault themselves. Uh, I am on a lot of committees to help uh, make policy and to help our partner agencies in the medical group and law enforcement agencies to work well together to have a good comprehensive response to sexual assault survivors. And I do kind of other 
committees that deal with public safety as well as children's safety with CPS and adults and things of that sort. So it's it's a wide array, uh, array mm-hmm. of things to do. Well, that definitely, yeah, that sounds really cool. And kind of just out of curiosity, why did you decide to kind of do this job? I mean, I know, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different things that you do, but why, what kind of drew you to it? I grew up in a very, what we call bad neighborhood. I'm an immigrant here and I was a refugee first and I immigrated here with my family and we grew up in a not so great community um, in the east side San Jose that has a lot of crime but a lot of really great people too. And so, and from a young age, I kind of understood the need for people to help others who may not have a voice in the community or may be scared or don't know what's going on. So that kind of drew me into it generally. And then when I became a prosecutor, I kind of meandered my way to the sexual assault unit out of uh, curiosity. I had some mentors who told me about the unit and it really resonated with me. And so I was lucky enough to be placed in the unit as a trial DA. And when I started prosecuting the cases, it really just um, stoked a fire in my belly to really Mm -hmm. help children who have been molested or adults who have been sexually assaulted. They are, I believe, the most vulnerable victims in our community. And a lot of times they don't have a voice. A A lot of times the perpetrator is somebody they know and trust. And so it is really quite rewarding to see a child or an adult be able to take back control and to Mm -hmm. learn that it's not their fault Uh, and to have some peace holding that person accountable um, and to take some of the dignity that was stolen away from their body I think back um, and to be able to have that honor to to help a child or a survivor is uh, it's something that it just perpetuates the motivation to keep it going yeah Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story and also sharing your passion because that is, you know, shows lots of empathy and I think is really important too. And I definitely experienced that when I went to court and kind of going through the process just made me feel more empowered in general. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about the judicial aspect and like general process of taking a sexual assault case to court? Sure. Let me just sidetrack real quick. I I didn't Mm -hmm. know if you had disclosed your particular situation, but I just wanted to commend you for the fact that you are willing to do that in order to help others that were innocent, that are in a similar situation as you. I think that's super brave. I just want to say thank you. for Mm -hmm. That's huge. That's huge. Thank you. Yeah, I did share my story in my first episode, and it's something that just keeps like motivating me to continue with this. Just like you mentioned, helping others and seeing others be able to feel more empowered and take back some of that dignity and just realize that it's not their fault and they have their own voice that they can use is just what kind of keeps me motivated to continue with this. <laughs> I'm really excited. That's so great. Um, So I will talk a little bit about the judicial process. So what happens is when a crime occurs, the police goes out and they investigate it. 
we work with the police department very closely, but we are not the police department. Mm -hmm. We don't do our own investigations. That's for the police to do. Once they finish the investigation, they will refer the case to me, to our unit, to the district attorney's office, and we review the investigation, the case, to see if there's enough evidence to file charges. So if there is enough evidence to file charges, then we do. And then the case will start in court with the first court hearing called an arraignment, which is basically when the perpetrator, who I'm going to call the defendant, because once charges are filed, that's what the name is legally for that person that we are accusing of of these crimes. They are formally charged with, with the charges, and then they get appointed an attorney or they can retain their own attorney. A prosecutor, a trial DA, will be assigned the case, and then we take it there forward to to the rest of the prosecution. So part of the prosecution um, proceedings are going to be the preliminary hearing, which is a hearing where we have to prove more likely than not that the defendant committed the crimes charged and that he is the person that committed the crimes. So I'm going to use the pronoun he kind of generally so that I don't have to say he, she, they all the time for disease, <laughs> but it includes everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the preliminary hearing, the court, the judge or the court, they're interchangeable, those words, will hold the defendant to answer to, in front of a jury uh, for the charges that were proved up at the preliminary hearing. So after the preliminary hearing, the case will be set for discussion. Sometimes it will resolve. A lot of times it will resolve. Other times it won't, and we'll take it to trial. And a trial is, as I'm sure many of you already know, it's a, it's a proceeding where um, we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person committed all of the elements of the crime and is the person that committed the crime. That means we need to overcome all reasonable defenses in the case and other other things that are there. So um, 12 people need to unanimously agree on a verdict, whether that's guilty or not guilty. Um, If it is not unanimous, then it's what we call a mistrial, a hung jury, where they cannot come to a unanimous verdict. And then the case will start over. We would have to try the case again. Or depending on what happened in trial, we may or may not be able to move forward anymore. If the person is convicted, then the case goes to, convicted means they're found guilty. It goes to a sentencing hearing where the judge will determine how long the punishment is going to be, the sentence it's going to be. And at that uh, hearing, the victims uh, or victim, depending how many they are, can speak to the judge about how the crime or crimes have impacted them and what they would like Mm. to see happen. If a jury comes back not guilty, that's acquitted. The case is done. They found the person is not guilty, um, meaning that either the person is innocent or they didn't think that the people proved every element beyond a reasonable doubt. So then the case is done. So, So that's generally how a criminal case goes uh, from start to finish. Okay. Thank you. Um, So in this process, because there could be a lot of different things, like you mentioned, you have to make sure there's enough evidence first, and then you can go and then it's like this process. So what are some things that you think 
adolescents or parents of adolescents should keep in mind when they have a case that is going through the criminal court process? Sure. So I think adolescents or children or adults um, really should keep in mind that the process is slow, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of times people think it's over in like a day or two. It really does last <laughs> several years, actually. It's usually yeah. two to three years. I know it can be really frustrating. But um, in real life, we do have constitutional rights of the defendant, the accused, that we have to uphold and we should uphold. But with that comes, um, you know, comes procedures that can not really delay it, but cause the process to be long. So, for example, we have to get all of the evidence from the police. Once we get the evidence, we have to turn it over to the defense attorney so the defense attorney can review everything and do their investigation based on what they get. Um, During the process of preparing the case, we may find that we need further investigation because the victim says something that we didn't know before and we want to look into it. So all of those things need to happen. The attorneys need time to review all of the evidence when it's finally done so they can come in and actually discuss the case uh, meaningfully to see if they can come to a resolution. Um, Each attorney carries a very heavy caseload. My Mm -hmm. attorneys right now are carrying about 70 cases at any time, which is absolutely just horrendous in terms of... um, of, of just workload. And so sometimes when a DA is in trial on one case, they can't do anything in the other trials because they're in court, obviously trying a case. And so those cases need to be continued until they're available um, and things of that sort. So there's a lot of things that happen in between, just like you said, um, that take time to get through. And honestly, we really want to do this right the first time. We want to get all of the evidence there. We want to make sure that the victim is being apprised of what's happening and understands that the case takes a long time, that the defendant's rights are being honored as well, um, so they can have a fair trial. Uh, we want a fair trial, and we want to get it done right, because if and when we get a conviction, um, the defendant will almost always appeal the conviction and allege all these mistakes that were made Um And we want to be able to have the Court of Appeal who reviews the conviction say, no, there weren't any mistakes. You did it right. And so, yeah, yeah, we want to make sure it gets done right because if it doesn't and the Court of Appeal finds a mistake that is prejudicial, it gets reversed and we have to start all over again. And we don't want to do that. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't really know about that. But I think also it's important that like, you said um, the attorneys have lots of cases on their hands and it's really important to just like communicate with them and provide them with evidence and like, you know, because I know when I was like seven, like I was pretty scared to like communicate a lot of stuff. So it wasn't like the easiest probably to work with a seven-year-old um but I think, yeah, that's probably something important to keep in mind. And yeah, it does it does take time. And um, but I think it's also to import important to remember that it's a process, but it's also a process that can help you heal if you think of it as helping empower your voice and 
uh, your actions and um, whatnot. So, you make a very good point. I kind of got derailed with the with the process, but you're absolutely correct, which is the process is long, but it's independent of your healing. And so one of the things we do tell our victims and survivors is let the stress of the criminal case be our stress. That's our job. We take that on. Your job is to heal, to feel better, to get therapy, to get whatever services and help that you need and to heal regardless of what's happening in the criminal case and know that we are working for you to hold the person accountable, but we just want you to, to not stress out about that part, but to continue to heal, like you said, and do what's right for you. And if you're a parent for your child um, in terms of all the services and help that he or she may need to, to, to feel empowered again. Mm-hmm. That is really important. Yeah. What are the main challenges that you see in sexual violence cases? What are the main challenges that these cases face that may lead them to either not have a strong enough case to go to court, like maybe not enough evidence, or not achieve justice in court and like not win the case, I guess? Sure. So when I'm Viewing a case, I have to look at several things. I have to look at whether we've identified the person. Usually we do in sexual assault cases, but also whether Mm -hmm. or not we can prove the defendant's state of mind beyond a reasonable doubt. That's actually what the law requires us to do. So some of the major challenges that I see is that even though the victim experienced a sexual assault uh, in her or his perspective, none of that was communicated to the defendant. And so there are different mental states that have to be proven for mm-hmm. it to be a crime. So some, if I can't prove the mental state because the victim didn't say anything and went along with it, quote unquote, then the person didn't know that the, that the victim was not consenting. If the, if the defendant didn't use force, fear, or duress to get the victim to comply, It may be a sexual harassment case, which is civil, but that's not a criminal case, which requires some type of uh, different element. And so that's number one in terms of like technically some of the challenges. I think society wise, the other major challenge is society is still very judgmental on our survivors. I know we have the Me Too movement, which is wonderful and great. I'm so happy about that. It's only five years old. But I think that there's a lot of bias still, um, unconscious or whatnot, about how people think survivors should react or would react, and especially when it comes to children. Yeah. And they, they really do harbor, I think, some unfair biases uh, that they may not know about, about how children may react. And so that can be a challenge. It's also a challenge on judgment, like, You know, I get a lot of cases where we have an intoxicated female. She went on a date with somebody she met online and they're super intoxicated. And maybe she's way too intoxicated to be capable of consent. And that's very apparent. And I may even charge it. But we still have to overcome the very real judgment that females tend to have on other females. And some males as well have on females and say, well, she shouldn't have gotten that drunk. Well. 
I never knew that getting drunk was a license to get raped. That that anybody mm-hmm. can get drunk. Getting drunk is not illegal. Raping somebody is illegal. Yet, you know, people have that kind of knee jerk reaction still when they're uh, confronted with it. They may act like their Go Me Too movement, but in a courtroom, some of that bias still does seep in. And so, um, I would say those are still a, a major challenge in these cases. Yeah. That's really interesting, especially, like you said, you know, just getting super drunk. That doesn't mean like when you decide to get drunk, you aren't saying, oh, like I'm going to get raped or something like that. Like that's that's not right. Also with the children, how children react, I think that's really interesting, too, because oftentimes with children, they're normally experiencing some sexual violence from someone who's closer, close with them, and maybe someone like a family member sometimes or a teacher. So it's often kind of different because kids also often don't really know what sex is. So like if something happens, it's like they may react differently, especially if it's a close family member who they thought they could trust. And maybe depending on how speaking out affects the rest of their family and affects the rest of their lives. So I think, yeah, there are definitely a lot of biases about how children should react or, but each case is very different. So. Yeah. Each case is very different and you are completely correct on everything you, you've said. Um, a lot of times in any sexual assault, children or, or adult, adult victim, the perpetrator is somebody close. And so because mm-hmm. of that, there also creates a dynamic that can be very confusing for the victim. On the one hand, this person who you love and admire and get along with in all other areas of your life um, mm-hmm. is somebody you support and who supports you. But then in this one area, they're doing something that feels really icky. And so you don't know how to always reconcile those two things, right? And so it can be very confusing. And as and for children, they don't have the coping mechanisms that adults have. They're children. They're still mm-hmm. learning. And so you, you know, you're very correct in that it really is unfair for adults to impose their adult standards on a child. And so we do bring in experts to explain that to the jury to help them kind of mm-hmm. understand and disabuse them of certain myths and try to get them to see the evidence in the most unbiased way. Uh, yeah. Just to help anyone who is currently thinking about maybe, I I don't know, someone who maybe wants to go to court and thinking about bringing their case up and reporting their case, it might be helpful to kind of talk about some examples of evidence that would be strong and like useful in court, just kind of maybe general ones, because I know it's dependent on every case. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a major challenge in sexual assault cases is that it usually happens quickly and it and the only two people who know about it is the abuser mm-hmm. and the victim because yeah. it's done in a conspicuous way, right? No one's going to go molesting a child in front of everybody. That doesn't make any sense, right? Or if they do it, they might be in front of everybody, but they may do it under the blanket. They may do mm-hmm. it um, secretly with a, you know, a touch, a quick touch here and there where no one can really see it, right? Um, and so a lot of times these cases don't have very much evidence. It's just, it is what it is. It's the nature mm-hmm. of the beast. But sometimes there is helpful evidence that would be 
anytime that the victim has told another person about the abuse, even if they said, hey, this person makes me feel icky, even if they don't tell all the details, those people are very important to be interviewed and to give their statement. So having those people's information, disclosing that to the police is very important. Any text messages, social media, emails, anything uh, like that about the, the case. If you told anybody over chat, if that person communicated with you, you over the chat, and especially I would say this, Snapchat is just really, um, I see a lot of bad things happen over Snapchat. Part of it is okay. because the messages get erased. And so uh, I would really say that if there's any anybody who's dealing with this with Snapchat messages or any messages that may get deleted automatically, take screenshots, right? Mm-hmm. You got to take screenshots so that we can support what you said happened. And so tell somebody, tell somebody you trust, maybe a friend, maybe a teacher, your parents, your sister, your cousin, whoever, give those names. Save all text messages, all communication, um, mm-hmm. and always tell the truth. If you tell the truth, life is life. There's the good, the bad, the ugly, and the questionable. Like, so we're not looking for perfect people. We're looking for the truth. And we can, if if you tell the truth, and we can look at all the other factors that we consider, we can prove the case. But we mm-hmm. need that's all we need. We just need the truth. Yeah. Also, I think like what you mentioned about tell trusted person and give them the information like I think that's really important as well because you know don't try to do it all by yourself and you know someone's always there always going to be there to support you and help you and yeah so it's always really important to just tell someone you trust Mm -hmm. so I know we kind of talked about this a little bit but are there any unique challenges that come along with working with child victims? Sure. I, I think we did touch upon that in terms of, you know, the children's reactions and the biases against mm-hmm. them. I think for children working with them, part of it is building a rapport and trust with the child. It is a very scary process. It's scary for adults. And so yeah. I couldn't imagine how scary it is for a child. So part of that, we do what we call a meet and greet so that we can meet the child. Then we do a court tour where we bring the child in the courtroom and explain to them this and that, what happens and where everybody is seated. You're kind of nodding your head. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, just trying to get the child comfortable enough so that they can say the stuff in, in the courtroom in front of that person and in front of all the other people. So I think for children, I think it's very scary for them. Part of our job um, is to comfort them and let them know that they're safe. They didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes children think they did something wrong just because the police are involved. But, um, Mm. you know, just assuring them that they didn't do anything wrong. It's not their fault. Um, They have support. And then when they get on the stand, it's very scary. Just, I mean, kind of thinking about like, you know, public speaking, right? It's super scary. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then the poor little kid has to go up there and have little yucky stuff. And so mm-hmm. it's super, it's just super hard on the child. It's what is required by the law. 
And so really taking the time to get to know the child, taking the time to explain to the child what to expect and asking the questions so that the child can understand it and respond accurately and truthfully. Those are really um, challenges with victims and very young children. Sometimes they just will throw a tantrum and won't want to say anything. stubborn and have a teenager reaction in court and that can you know be difficult too because it's frustrating Mm -hmm. but you know overall at the end of the day we make it through and you know the child gets to the child gets to get her voice back which I think I hope is very healing yeah. Yeah. Actually, a lot of things that you mentioned, I could kind of relate to when I was younger. I remember I remember going up and being on stand and like having this little like squishy ball or something that I was given like a stress ball. Yeah. And then I remember like, yeah, I, I think for children, it is pretty hard to like talk about, you know, their body and whatnot especially in front of like a bunch of strangers because you aren't like you know when you're younger it's like oh so like there's so much stigma and like taboo I guess around like private parts and whatnot so but I do remember the overall experience just having a lot of support from you know my attorney and from my parents my grandparents and I think overall can be a very empowering experience even if you don't end up winning the case at the end it still can be empowering by just using your voice and going through the process so 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 let me ask you really quickly what advice mm-hmm. would you give children who are uh, I think for children I would say really try to tell someone you trust. I think I did tell someone I trusted, but like I did, I didn't understand it was wrong at the time. So I think once you first notice that something doesn't feel right, try to tell someone you trust. And then through the process, I would say, don't be scared to be honest and tell the whole and like share everything because I know through my experience, like I tried to share everything and be honest, but I didn't know what may be helpful, maybe not helpful in the case. And I just don't think I ended up sharing like every single bit of, you know, evidence, I guess. And so I think don't be scared to share that. And like you mentioned, just try your best to be honest and with the people you feel safe around because you're so young and you may not know what may be helpful and just telling the whole truth will just make you feel better and help your case too. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking that question. (laughs) And thank you so much, Juan, for, for doing this. It's been really, really great experience and just... Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It is my honor to speak with you, Alessandra. You are such a gold star already <laughs> and just such a light in this world. I'm very sorry that you suffered what you had to suffer, but seeing you transform yourself and to use your pain um, 
and to transform it into something powerful from pain to power is incredible. And you're super young and doing it. And I think I said this to you when we first spoke, but I'm going to repeat it. I cannot wait to see all the wonderful things you're going to continue to do in your life to help other people. Just, just, you are such a gold star. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and the wonderful interview. My sexual assault resource page is linked in the description box at the end of every episode and in the podcast description. There you'll be able to find sexual violence definitions, legislation, and resources to help with prevention and recovery. You can also find some sources to learn about how to help and support others. And if anyone is in need of help right now, the RAIN Sexual Assault and Abuse and Sexual Violence National Hotline is 800-656-4673. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you continue to come along this healing journey with me. Bye!